0: There's many ways to live a life. And I think also throughout the course of our lives, we experiment, we try, we try this on How's this working for me? How's it working for me to wear this mask or to try to live up to these standards or, To be in this group of people who live according to these values and therefore might be evaluating me in this way as opposed to this group which have a totally different value system and are living in this way who do i feel happier with you know and these are amazing questions to be able to ask and you're very lucky to be able to have choices and free will in this way because like i said many people and actually the majority of people in the world don't but they are important questions to ask and when we do have that free will we also have the responsibility To look within, ask those questions, and come up with the best answers for ourselves.
1: Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. I am delighted you are here for another episode as we have a phenomenal guest, Dr. Anna Yusim. Before we get into this episode, if you can do me a favor, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. These reviews definitely help and help secure guests like Dr. Anna. So who is Dr. Anna Youssef? She is an internationally recognized, award-winning, Stanford and Yale-educated, board-certified psychiatrist and executive coach. It was a pleasure speaking to Dr. Anna today as I really felt the depth of her experience from her education at Stanford and Yale, but also her curiosity as she explored the spirituality side of healing. She's written this wonderful book that we talk about called Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier and More Meaningful Life. And I thought it would be extremely interesting to get Dr. Anna's perspective on what it means to be fulfilled and how we can cultivate this feeling of fulfilled. Because often, money and its apparent illusion to provide fulfillment in and itself leaves us feeling empty when we don't find that sense of fulfillment from the money itself. Of course, money can help us experience more moments of happiness, but the money in and itself has been shown time and time that it can't be the source of happiness or fulfillment. Dr. Anna has a vast amount of experience working with Forbes 500 CEOs, Olympic athletes, A-list actors and actresses, and the list really goes on and on. I appreciate how Dr. Anna has such a vast amount of experience working in over 70 countries, which allows her to be sensitive to everybody has a different background, a different story. Her main goal is to help create this greater impact so that people can feel more purpose and joy in their home and life at work. And you really hear this during the podcast. Dr. Anna's work has been picked up by many of the major news outlets such as CNN, Fox News, ABCs, and so many other news outlets because of its practical use. She takes this complex study of medicine and science, spirituality, and puts it into an understandable and relatable way on how we can implement this into our lives. And we talk a lot about how it's not just money that may distract us from being fulfilled or happier. Success, achievement, and so many other things act as this distraction that keeps us from looking inside of ourselves. And Dr. Anna talks a lot about how we have these masks. We show up with these masks that really hide who we actually are. And it's going inwards below the multiple layers of the mask that we really start to understand ourselves, we start to embrace the emotions that we have inside of ourselves to really make sense of who we are. I encourage everybody to get a copy of Dr. Anna Usum's book, Fulfilled, How the Science of Spirituality Can Help You Live a Happier and More Meaningful Life. And now, I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Anna Usum. Dr. Anna, I'm delighted to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much, Sean. Yeah, just reading your bio, there's so many things that I want to dive into right away. Today, for some reason, joy really spoke to me, so I'd like to talk about joy and what purpose joy brings into our lives. But first, I kind of want to give an overview of why I was excited to have you on the show. On this podcast, we talk a lot about the fact that as human beings, we use stories as a way to find structure and as a way to even evolve. I mean, we look at our evolutionary history as we evolve and cultures evolve and persevere over time due to stories. It almost seems like one of our biggest survival skills was our ability to take in and tell stories. And so we can see all the benefits of stories. But on on the other side, we have a lot of stories that we ruminate on and tell ourselves about things about ourselves that aren't necessarily always true and when we add money into the mix there's this like an intoxication effect that money can have not all the time on our stories that we might feel envious of others or we aren't good enough and then we start to perpetuate and sometimes when we're not consciously aware of all this we might distract ourselves from understanding who we actually are in the pursuit of money So I thought it'd be wonderful to have you on the show to talk about the science of fulfillment and and what you've learned through your depth of expertise and research around this idea of living a fulfilled life. You talk about a story in your book where in the middle of the night, you woke up and you had an awakening that night, which perhaps was representative of a larger awakening in your life. Can you maybe start at this time in 2012? What significance did this have on your journey?
0: Absolutely. Thank you, Sean, for that introduction. And I love the theme that you are focusing on. And I'm very excited to go deep into this with you. That particular story happened when I was on a trip to the Ukraine. And it was when I was studying Kabbalah way back in the day. Kabbalah is a form of Jewish mysticism. And I was in the Ukraine and woke up with a start, feeling that something was terribly wrong. I didn't know what was going on, and I'd never felt like that in the past. However, many of my patients had described feeling like that, and what I deduced was I was having a midnight panic attack. Something was really wrong, and I had no idea what it was. I felt compelled to check my email, and a moment prior, a patient of mine had emailed me telling me he was feeling suicidal. By virtue of waking up at a start, getting that email, I was able to call my patient and in real time, literally and figuratively, talk them off the ledge. Now, if that hadn't happened, would my patient have been okay? Perhaps. Or maybe not. We just don't know. But the fact that that did happen was so meaningful to both myself and my patient because I was thinking, how is it that we are so connected 5,000 miles and seven time zones away and this got me to thinking and researching this idea of interconnectedness and even thought transference, how we can, in a way, communicate thoughts or read other people totally on the other side of the world or be so deeply intertwined with the people close to us, either loved ones, patients, clients, et cetera, that we can have these sorts of perception. So that was the story. And for me, that story, the reason it was the larger awakening was that oftentimes we're very guided. And even when something could be terribly wrong, you could wake up in the middle of the night, you can have an intuition, you can really be taken in a direction that's quite different from the direction that you think that you need to go or the direction that you might have thought you were going all
1: along. Thank you for that. I like this idea of the way you think you should have been going and perhaps there's a course correction or an alternate path. And I like that story because, I mean, we can visually see someone awaking out of bed and representing that awakening in the the grander, I guess, routes we're taking in life. And I I want to just touch on one more piece of your past because I think it's important to understand where you were to where you are now. As I read the bio, you appeared to be on a certain path. If I read your bio of medical school... It seemed like there was a, a trajectory going with maybe i call it traditional medicine. And at some point, it seems like there's a deviation where, again, we're, we're thinking we're going down a certain path and then we start to take another, another turn. Can you speak to, was that on all, all at once moment? Was that an accumulation of many items you were curious about? How did you change your path?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a number of things happening in my life and it came from a source of pain. I had met somebody that I really liked and the relationship just wasn't working. And I started researching this concept of the soul and soul connections and soulmates. And that concept took me to studying a little bit more because I was always a highly, highly rational medical person, not a spiritual person at all. Had anyone told me I was going to be spiritual, like 15 years prior, I would have laughed. That was the furthest thing from my mind. But then this concept of soul and soulmates and just my study and interest in that took me into, first of all, Judaism, and then into spirituality, and then into these other realms, starting to understand what is the soul really. And that question, really understanding how does the soul, um, what role does it play in healing? And how come if... I'm ultimately going to be a psychiatrist and helping people to heal their souls. How come the soul wasn't really mentioned in my medical school, in residency? And so I went far and wide. I started traveling the world in search of an understanding of this concept of soul. And it took me to ashrams in India and learning Buddhist meditation in Thailand and studying Kabbalah in Israel and then working with various shamans in South Africa and South America. And my favorite definition of soul came from a Mexican shaman named Fernando Broca. And he defined the soul as being comprised of two parts. The first part was that which connects us to everybody and everything. And so it's our interconnectedness with one another. And the second part is that which encapsulates our uniqueness. So what is my unique set of values and experiences and interests and talents that I can serve the world with? And I love that definition of soul. And it really started to you know, change the way that I think about everything. And it certainly changed my course as a healer. I became not just a doctor of the mind and the body, but really thinking of myself as a healer of the
1: soul. Okay. Well, I really, really enjoy hearing your apparent, from what I can understand from you, openness to change and lack of rigidity. I I meet often professionals and I'm a, by trade, I'm a financial planning professional. And we, we seem to carry as professionals this this layer of armor that kind of gives us some narrowed thinking. And I speak from experience on that where it's like, oh, no, the way I've been trained is the way. And I hear you as you're, you're, you're talking, trained medical professional. The spirituality work is not typically in, in medical training. But yet you have this element of curiosity to go and open the way you see the world. Was a lot of that motivated by that first thing you said, pain?
0: Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that I had as much rigidity as any other person, probably even more. And yet being in the pain point, you have to break your structures, right? You either stay in pain or you break down your structures. That's the choice you have. And if you choose to break down your structures, the world opens and then you're able to see the world anew and able to step into ways of interacting with reality that you didn't have before. And if you stay rigid then maybe you can get the world to comply with your demands, but many of us can't and often won't. And so then we can stay rigid and yet unhappy or start to become more flexible, break our structures and redefine what happiness means. And really happiness being accepting life on life's terms and living the most fulfilling life we can.
1: Oh, wow. Accepting life on its terms. But Dr. Anna, that's scary. I'm fearful that I'll get it wrong. We're all going to get it wrong. (laughs) We're all going to get it wrong. And... What role does fear play in here? Fear of, if I look at this socially constructed narrative around what happiness is in terms of the pursuit of money, it's we get in line, we go to work, we chase promotions, we hope that one day we can be happy, which it's this elusive goal when we have happiness in and itself. But it seems so fearful to step out of the line and go against the grain. What role does embracing our fears play in this at all? Yeah, I mean, fear is such a strong
0: motivator, right? It could be a wonderful thing because your fears will lead you to go outside of yourself and be bigger than yourself over and over and over. And if fear plays that role in your life, beautiful. However, you can do the same thing without fear. You can choose to grow and to transform and evolve and to do so from a place of love or a place of faith as opposed to a place of fear. And oftentimes, rather than pushing you to be more, fears will hold you back being all that you can be. And it's the rigidity that you said. It creates this rigid wall around you that here is what you are allowed. Here is what the world should be like. Here's what everybody expects of you. Here is how you should think about everything, how much money you need to have, how much you need to be accomplishing, what kind of fame, status, power, money, achievement, family, love, whatever your thing is, money being just one of them, right? Whatever that thing is, if you don't have enough of it, you are failing. You know, that's kind of what society tells us. And if you can step on the, to the other side of that and realize that's all an illusion, that's all a lie, and start to live instead your joy and recognize that, wait a second, I can be happy, not just when I have my 7 million or 8 million or $9 million, but I can be happy now. And I can pursue my goals still, but to do so while being happy and not put my happiness on hold, that's like a revelation.
1: Yeah, I'm going to touch into joy here, but first, let's go into, because I think it's important that we paint a picture of where we're going and where I want to go is, like I explained on the top, but through your book, like your book is a guide to get there. So your subtext of the book is how the science of spirituality can help you live a happier and more meaningful life. We've mentioned happy a couple times for yourself as you embarked on creating this book what was the, the directionally right, because I don't know if there's ever a concrete direct our definition, the directionally right definition for yourself on happiness and a meaningful life? And if you want to throw joy in there, feel free, because that word is just feeling good for me today. <laughs>
0: yeah. And I like, you know, defining happy or happiness or contentment in two parts, one being your acute state. How are you feeling today? Knowing that full well that that is going to fluctuate and that's going to be contingent upon a number of factors. How much sleep you got, what you ate for breakfast, whether your neurotransmitters are where they need to be, where you are in your menstrual cycle, God knows what else, whether you had a nice interaction or a not nice interaction with somebody. But that's part of happy too, your acute state. And then there's happiness, more like contentment overall, and which you can think of more in the sense of purpose, which is how you are feeling overall about your life. Whether you feel as though you are accomplishing and living in accordance with the values that you want to be living with, right? And that's bigger. So you could be feeling really, really down, but overall be feeling content with the kind of life that you've lived. Or you can feel really happy every day, but really not met any of your so-called milestones. Both of these are responsible for our happiness. And so in the ideal scenario, we are feeling good or at least have the capacity for pleasure every day or many days and in addition to that we have a view of what we want our life to be and we're able to live in accordance and meet many of those if not all milestones
1: okay thank you so we have this like moment to moment it sounds like experiential Mm -hmm. happiness and then when i'm reflecting on my porch how my life is going this evaluative view on happiness and that makes sense i like the two different approaches And how does fulfillment assist us in experiencing more happiness? What role does fulfillment play?
0: Well, fulfillment, as I see it, is this concept that encompasses both being able to have levels of acute happiness or at least the capacity for that. Because if someone doesn't have that, and I treat many people as a psychiatrist who just don't have that for whatever reason, which could be a biochemical reason or because there's unprocessed trauma or because something very, very difficult has happened and they're still processing the difficulty and moving beyond that, right? So we have to give people the capacity to feel joy, to feel acute fulfillment, and also the capacity to have goals within people's abilities to pursue some sort of goal for what it means to have a good life for them. And so fulfillment is
1: the combination of those two things. I appreciate you breaking this down. And the thing that I experienced and what I liked about in your book, you use a specific term that I want to ask a question, but it seems like we know what we should do. But then we have these psychological barriers that prevent us from doing it. And, and then we get attracted to these distractions. In this case, we're talking money. But like you said, it could be any sort of external distraction. And it seems that through childhood and as we grow to keep ourselves safe, we created these masks and you talk about the mask and is this mask a way to keep us safe? And it seems to me that this mask really likes to look at all these external things that distract us, distract us from getting inside of ourselves. So can you talk about the significance of understanding our mask and the aspirational goal of taking it off?
0: Absolutely. And I think, you know, in my definition, one of the cornerstones of living a fulfilled life is being able to live an authentic life, being who you really are, finding yourself. And antithesis to that is wearing a mask. And many of us wear masks all the time. And oftentimes, we're not even aware that we're wearing a mask. Because in a way, also, this idea of really knowing yourself and being authentic is a luxury. It's not something that's afforded to everybody in all cultures and many parts of the world. In many cultures, getting into society, playing a certain role in your family, in your neighborhood, in your society community, is really what's expected of you. And this idea of who am I beneath that isn't even a question that we ask. But in our culture, in much of the Western world, that is a question that's asked, and people really are encouraged in the name and in the service of creativity and truth and living the most fulfilled life possible to understand authenticity and to be able to take off the mask. And it's not to say that you're supposed to take off the mask all the time. You may often choose to play this role or that role or that role, but to do so consciously, as opposed to to do so by default and not really know what's underneath.
1: So with that last part where you say it's conscious, like I guess, am I hearing you correct that it's okay to have that mask on if we're consciously aware that that mask is on? And like maybe an example is, I can't think, I, I don't want to speak ill of any career, but say it's a profession that maybe we don't think is going to change the world. And I guess a version of that is just being okay with, hey, I need to provide for my family. This is the role that I play to to support my family and connect with them. And I like that because it it seems like it's taking less pressure off of us to all have these finding fulfilling careers and live our purpose and do these grandiose, legendary lives, which might be available for some. But is that what you're saying? Is that it's okay if we don't do these, if we don't have a statue made of our ourselves in our hometown because we didn't live this life-changing impact in, we didn't have this life-changing impact in the world?
0: Absolutely. And, you know, it was actually interesting. I was reading this article in The New Yorker. This is your life by Adam Phillips, a British psychoanalyst yesterday. And he makes this point that in a way, striving for the best possible life and to achieve everything that you want to fulfill could lead to a lot of bitterness because some people, many people fall short. There's a lot of goals. Society tells us we need to be A, B, C, D. But what if we're D, E and F and not A and not B? And so he's like, instead really live your life to the best of your ability and with as much fulfillment as possible and don't look back. And there's something to that as well. There's a lot of wisdom in that. There's many ways to live a life. I think also throughout the course of our lives, we experiment, we try, we try this on size. How's this working for me? How's it working for me to wear this mask or to try to live up to these standards or... To be in this group of people who live according to these values and therefore might be evaluating me in this way, as opposed to this group, where which have a totally different value system and are living in this way, who do I feel happier with? Who, you know, And these are amazing questions to be able to ask. And you're very lucky to be able to have choices and free will in this way, because like I said, many people and actually the majority of people in the world don't, but they are important questions to ask. And when we do have that free will, we also have the responsibility to look within, ask those questions and come up with the best answers for ourselves.
1: So with your experience traveling to, I believe it was over 70 countries and you've alluded to that certain cultures don't have this luxury to look below the layers underneath the mask. Did you experience different levels of happiness or fulfillment within different cultural contexts that you recognize that they didn't have that luxury to go deeper?
0: For me, going to many of those cultures, I felt such a privilege to be able to be let in and to view what happened. And so my happiness within those contexts was never, do I feel more or less authentic? Do I feel more or less true to myself? My purpose in those cultures, I usually would go as either a doctor or a visitor of some sort or, you know, it was such a privilege. How can I give to these communities? What a glimpse I have into this life, which is so different from my own. I think maybe... The question that you're asking to me would be more relevant, even within the cultures or the different friend groups that I have. There are certain ones that you feel much more connected to in terms of their values and other ones, maybe friends from the past, you know, with whom you share a past history, but not as much of your so-called evolving values. It's a different kind of friendship. It's a different kind of authenticity. You play a little bit more of a role and you cling to a historical past as opposed to being who you are now per se. So it's a a little bit of a different thing, but I think that it's also exciting that we are constantly always evolving and to let yourself go through the evolution, which includes also changing communities, changing friend groups, realizing that that's part of evolution is to let the past in a way fall away and to step into the new and be open to what it brings and let yourself be
1: guided. That's a great point. So how do we, if at all, start to shed those old masks as we step into the evolving future of ourselves, because we're fundamentally a different person every day because we experience and learn. Yeah. I find that, especially around this idea of people trying to change their narrative around money, and again, it could be anything, it's fearful to evolve because we cling on to that past that has that safety net. What would you say to someone if they said, Dr. Anna, I want to evolve and open my perspective, but this This past is so secure. It feels so safe. What do I do? If people had the luxury to do something like
0: this, I would say, can we change your environment? Can we put you in a totally different setting for, say, three months, six months and see what it's like in a totally different setting without all the triggers and cues that keep you being who you are in this environment? You know, it reminds me of some of the work of Dr. Joe Dispenza, who basically says that the reason so many people... Don't heal from illnesses because ultimately, they're doing all the treatments, but they're still the same person. You have to change who you are. You have to go within and really become a different person. And so the change is internal oftentimes, right? So I'm saying change your environment because it's often very difficult to change yourself if the same environmental cues that have made you who you are are present, are ever present for you. So if you can change your environment, that will shift. Not everyone has that luxury. If not, then we go within and we look, how do you change who you are? How do you change some of the fundamental values that make you who you are and release some of the things that keep you trapped? And how do we start to draw in and envision a different life and to envision that life in terms of the kinds of feelings you're going to feel when things are different, the kinds of outcomes you're going to have in your interactions and in your dealings in the world, the kind of people you're going to be surrounded with, every single thing. And the funny thing is like with money, for instance, we can cling so hard. We need this much. And in clinging so hard, we're actually pushing away what we most want because of our own rigidity. And it's if we release it. And if we're just like, you know what? I'm going to let the universe guide me. I have trust and faith and I'm going to live the best life possible and enable myself to be happy now. Not when I have what I think I want, but now then whatever you want comes to you. It just comes. And that's like, one of the magical keys, the spiritual keys
1: of life. Can you elaborate on that? And, and the reason why is because I like this idea of the grass. And as we hold tight-fisted, we're actually <laughs> detracting what we really want. And um, one, of the, one of my mentors always said that resistance, he always gives his hand example. Of, if I resist something, I can barely push my hand. I'm not flexible. But if I just let it in, I can almost bend my hand all the way back. So what role does spirituality have on that? And allowing us to be a little bit more flexible and loose of the tight grasp we have on, say, money.
0: Yeah, it's hard. It's very hard for sure. Because just like with money and for many other things that people desire, there's a very primitive fear that can come up. Oh my Mm. goodness, I'm not going to have this, this or this. And that primitive fear leads us to grasp. And so oftentimes we have to, in order to be able to release and let things come in, We have to enable ourselves to let go of some of those fears, to be comfortable enough with uncertainty to know we're going to be okay, no matter what, whether we have it or we don't. So to live in this place of equanimity and neutrality and to find joy in that place. And from that space, the rigidity begins to melt away. Now this is, I can say the words, but it's a very difficult spiritual practice Especially if we're raised in a capitalist society, which is all about wanting, identifying, having more materialism. I want that. I'm going to get that. My neighbor has that. I want that, but in a different color and even bigger, right? That's how we live our lives. That's how we're taught. So we don't live in a place where it's very easy to release, especially to release many forms of materialism. And this is relevant to money, but this is also achievement, love, anything else that people are looking for status, fame, power, money,
1: anything else. And so what have you seen? Because I, I, I've heard you talk about in your practice, you might prescribe traditional medication. Maybe I, I think I heard 50% of the time. And then the other time, it could be other practices. With this relentless pursuit of more achievement, success, wealth, money, whatever it is, what would you suggest to people? And, and this is so hard because we're all different. But on the non-medical side, a, a practice to help relinquish that Fist grasp.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, so, and in my practice as a psychiatrist, I do prescribe medication probably in 50% of cases, but often not necessarily for these sorts of things. The situations where I could prescribe it for something like this is if somebody, for instance, has an OCD thing, if there is like an obsessive compulsive pattern that keeps people from being able to release and like an obsessive compulsive nature that really is detrimental to their life, to their social or occupational functioning, that is actually really getting in the way of them being able to be the person they want to be. You know, like certain kinds of beliefs that they just can't shift. For many people, this work is soul work. It's not something that's often treated with medication. It's something that's treated more with therapy, with concrete goals, with meditation, with a number of other things. You know, but It also could at times lead to very severe depression, even suicidality could lead to tons of anxiety. And so the offshoots of that, you could also potentially, if medically indicated, treat with medication too. But for the other people that come in, we start to paint a picture of what they want their life to look like. And we start to identify what they're gonna need to release in order to be able to step into that reality. And slowly but surely we do that. And often I'll prescribe meditation, visualization, and really starting to shift who you are, which means changing your thoughts, your behaviors, and your actions, and very slowly but surely identifying the parts of yourself that you need to transform to become the best version of yourself and start drawing in what you really want. And also start drawing in our self-sabotaging patterns, which we all as human beings have, and start seeing the way that we can be saying, I want this, but actually we're drawing in something totally different because of our rigidity or our fears or self-sabotaging behaviors of which we're not even consciously aware.
1: In your book, when you have the three elements of fulfillment, authenticity, soul correction, and connecting something greater, if I'm connecting this properly, under soul corrections, you talk about mirroring images. And so let, let's go to you. Can you explain soul corrections and, and how mirror images might surprise us and how they're showing up in our lives?
0: Totally, totally.
1: Yes. So a soul
0: correction is much akin to what Sigmund Freud used to call a repetition compulsion. So it's those things that come up in our life again and again and again, often much to our chagrin and dismay, and despite our best efforts to change them. And so the reason it's called a soul correction is because it's something that our soul has come into this world to correct. And part of living our soul purpose is understanding what our soul corrections are. And for everybody, it's something different. The other part of living our soul's purpose is also knowing what your soul contribution is, the way in which you can use your unique set of talents, abilities, and skills in the service of the world. So it's knowing your soul correction and your soul contribution together, there is your soul's purpose. And you, I think, are talking about the shadow side. Yes, yeah. And how, in a way, in order to really know yourself and be able to live fully, and to live your soul correction, and to live authentically, you need to have a sense of your own shadow. And your shadow is that part of you that you're taught early on is somehow not okay. And so what we do is we're taught this, this, this of us, either our anger, or our being too needy, or our you know, judgment, or our jealousy, whatever is somehow unlovable. And so we're taught to disavow those qualities and we disavow them to the point that whenever we feel them, it's so not okay that we just start not feeling them at all. And so we just completely push them out of our conscious awareness. And whenever we do that, those things, what we resist persist. So those things come back even stronger and they come back stronger as projections. So then we start seeing those things that we have disavowed our own shadow in other people. So you can ask yourself the question, what bothers me most about other people? Often that very answer to that question is your own shadow, the part of you that you have disavowed.
1: I first heard of that when I hired a coach, a business coach, because I want to grow my business and my own money story was totally unconscious, taking over everything. And I was talking about this mastermind group I was in and how this one guy really bothered me. And he just asked me, like, I can't remember. It was like six years ago. But basically, what am I seeing in myself in that person? I'm like, nothing. And I remember laying in bed that night being like, oh, wow. And and yeah, it was is that element that I noticed those things because that's what's happening on inside of me.
0: Yeah, totally. I just want to say how profound that is to recognize that because that is one of so many stories that we have. That could be our self-sabotaging stories you might not even realize how self-sabotaging your own stories are right or how negative they could be or how much power you can get from the negativity inherent in your story right especially if our story is that of being a victim for some reason you know like i've been victimized by this person that person that person the victim is often someone with so much righteous indignation and they get they're so empowered through that victim mentality so it's so important to recognize you know, are our narratives serving us or are they actually undermining us?
1: Well, yeah, like I never that's quite the statement that the empowerment of being a victim.
0: Oh, yeah. So empowering. or being negative in any way, especially if in your negativity, you lash out at other people. That is so powerful that you being a victim gives you power to like dominate other people through your anger or your, you know, mm. powerful.
1: This is something that I've been thinking about of late, Is especially in the finance world and as males. I'm a financial planner by background. My, my wife is a nurse. And so naturally, I tended to our finances because I'm the big macho male who knows everything about money. And I didn't realize that my own story as a child, which I've talked about this on the podcast, I was super shy. And then I started making money and I attached power and my voice to money. And so, as I we got into our coupleship, my wife and I, we've been together sixteen years now. But um, I unconsciously used that. Well, I'm recognizing what you're saying, me as a victim, being like, I was always shy. People didn't see me. Now I see money as this powerful tool. But I was using that as a control method unconsciously in our relationship, and I just expected it, like that. I should manage our money because I'm the finance guy, and I'm unfortunately this this male role we sometimes, uh, this toxicity around the male role in finances consumes us. And I didn't realize that what was happening. You just helped me understand that I was harnessing that victim power and putting control over my wife in a, in a terrible way. And I think that happens so much around money and this idea of being a victim.
0: Absolutely. And not just money, just in general, like if we are unhappy for a lot of people, they will take their unhappiness out on others
1: in all sorts of
0: ways. For instance, they could start drinking and then terrorize their spouse through their drinking or through their drug use or whatever it is, or they can lash out. And, you know, so in a way, there's something so incredibly empowering in that victim mentality and the way in which people play the victim. So it's it's very, very powerful. And, you know, you're always told not to be the victim. But I think part of not being the victim is realizing how you can get this subtle unconscious power from that.
1: Mm-hmm. So this, I think, is really important because like, again, I've been saying money, you've been saying it's anything. And I agree with you. It's anything outside of that realm. I believe I, I pulled an excerpt of a, a review of your book, and I think it was from Joe. You mentioned it earlier, but I just want to read it because it speaks to the value of doing this hard work, of recognizing the power within this victim mentality that we have. And I want to understand, is it acceptance we need to do? Is it I don't know I want to figure out how we can reduce that victimhood, but because I feel like this is a wonderful direction to achieve. So the quote is, in her raw, real, and beautiful style, psychiatrist Anna Youssef shows you how to remove life's mask of illusion. Anna shares what we see in this world is less than 1% of its true reality. Fulfilled pulls back the curtains on revealing the other 99% of you. So if this victimhood or this victim mentality is preventing us from getting to this 99% the other 99% of us, how do we start to produce the victimhood's grasps on us?
0: Absolutely. And that was Donnie Epstein, who is who oh, sorry, an incredible leader and someone who is so evolved in himself, in himself and has helped so many people to evolve through his network chiropractic method. And so how do we reduce the power that victim mentality has over us versus to recognize that we too can fall prey to it? And once we recognize that, then we have a choice. If we're going blindly and unconsciously and victim mentality is running our life, we don't have any capacity to change that. But as soon as we recognize, oh, actually, okay, I'm going down that rabbit hole again. And look at this. My thoughts are becoming really negative. And when my thoughts become negative, the story that comes up is the story that I've been harmed by the world or by this person or by that person. And things are never going to work out for me. And I'm being judged by this, this, and this person as being less than whatever. And I'm losing the whatever competition or rat race for this reason. You know, So it's like you just go deeper and deeper into all of your layers of meaning that you're assigning to whatever way you're feeling less than whatever way that you are feeling the victim. And then you start to create the new narrative and the new narrative first begins with being in the here and now and being in the present and actually doing a fair assessment of your life and recognizing what are all the things I'm grateful for. It's not to say you're not trying to put like a plaster, you know, a feel good sparkly thing over your life and pretend that everything's perfect. Not at all. That's called spiritual bypassing, right? You don't want to do that either. What you actually want to do is to start to take an honest assessment of your life. What's good? What's not? What do you need to change? And how do you get there? And how do you get there while maintaining optimism, hope, faith, positive, you know, self-regard and positive regard for others and not taking yourself or others down through the negativity
1: of your own mind? I appreciate how you lay that out is you have to have the hope and optimism, but it's not ignoring what's actually happening you know there's times where you be happy think be happy and i think that perpetuates the discontent but when we're in those negative thought cycles and everything seems like it's not going to work out and it could be again anything in this case i'll give like oh, i'm never going to make enough money i'll never have enough money and i'm really in this negative cycle where hope is not even something that i can imagine how do people start to cultivate this optimism and hope
0: yeah you start to cultivate optimism and hope, I believe, by asking for help from the divine to say, please give me more optimism and hope. Please show me a sign that things are going to change, that things are going to be all right. And then you start to do, which is one of the most difficult things to do, is to start to surrender and let go of some of your control. And you remind yourself that I am not in control here or I, am, I have limited control here. I think that's the first step. Or many people, especially people, if they if and you don't have to be a spiritual or religious person, you have to believe that there is something greater than yourself. Now, if you don't believe there's something greater than yourself, which is also a significant subset of our population, then the way that you cultivate hope is you yourself create a vision for the future that you want, and you start to hold that in your heart and in your mind, and you start to feel the feelings of that, and you start to magnetize that in and draw that to you by virtue of making it real in your heart and mind.
1: And I guess that speaks to your your third element of connecting to something greater in your elements of fulfillment.
0: Yes, exactly. So, right. So what is spirituality? I mean, my definition of it is connection to something greater than oneself, right? Which could be to God, to the universe, to mother nature, to a set of collective transcendent values, like hope, trust, faith, and perseverance, and when you have that, when you have that connection to something greater, you realize that you're not alone in the world, that what you're seeking is seeking you. And as you go to find something, if you're truly following your heart, the world is going to align to bring whatever you need to you.
1: And, and it sounds like that last part where you said earlier about surrender and letting go, having that greater belief, it sounds like it really can help that surrendering and letting go because then you could be like, hey, I don't have the decision here.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's also like kind of recognizing the limits of prayer and the limits of control that we have over the divine, you know, because I also have clients who when they pray and don't get what they want, they feel abandoned by God. One of the main questions that leads people to lose faith is why do bad things happen to good people? The reality is we just don't know, but they do. So there are these unanswerable questions that faith really can give you a lot of philosophical lumbo jumbo about, but can't ever answer in like a, you know, a satisfying way for many people. And so that's the other part. It's like recognizing the power of prayer, but recognizing it more, or, you know, asking for guidance, recognizing it more as like an ongoing meditation, as opposed to something that you command or control. And the more that you are able to let go of control and surrender, all aspects of your life the more your life starts to flow as you would want it
1: makes me think about this idea of this letting go and surrendering it it feels good then there's this other idea of self-agency and like that I have the belief that I can do something where is the balance if anything at all between letting go surrendering and cultivating agency
0: Absolutely. And that, I think that that balance is at the root of every single aspect of our life. And I love the book by David Hawkins. He's an MD PhD psychiatrist. He's passed not too many years ago called power versus force. And power is our agency, that which we can will into the world. No, I'm sorry. That's force. Force is what we do with our agency, what we will into. And power is the opposite. It's that which we are able to create and manifest by the magnetic power of our being, you know, through meditation, through authenticity, through love, through being in our presence. It's almost like the feminine way of creating as opposed to the masculine, I'm gonna go out there and do it way of creating. So for all of us, we're balancing power and force. And for a lot of people, we're taught, especially men and very empowered masculine women, we're taught to have more force in our life And so it's hard to step into and fall back into power and to let yourself receive. Power is about the power of receiving. Force is about the power of making things happen.
1: Mm, Wow, that was a great answer. I actually did listen to that audiobook of Power Versus Force. You know what's interesting? And I don't know if you see this in your work, but I see money is such an opportunity for people to have almost an accessible window into themselves, to their emotions, to this idea of, especially around males, power versus force. And I say that because we deal with money indirectly or directly, so many different touch points throughout the day. It's in a sense relatable if we surrender to, I'm going to look inside myself through this window. And you know what, you might be surprised at what, what you find down there.
0: Absolutely. And I think that that's really like anything that is meaningful to you. It's a mirror and a window into your soul. Money for sure. The way in which people relate to money is a reflection and a projection of how they relate to, to themselves, to their own power, to their own agency, to their own feelings of victimization and helplessness, to their own feelings of freedom and independence in this world or feeling trapped. Trapped either by lack of money or too much money or expectations of people or people in your life who are controlling you through money. So there's so many elements in which that's exactly the case. Money is this amazing projection vehicle for the rest of our lives.
1: Well, thank you for this. I see our, our time is coming to an end. You are, uh, pardon the ton upon wealth of knowledge. My last question is, let's say that you're at life and whatever age that is, and you're anywhere in the world that brings you peace you might be looking at an ocean mountains a lake again whatever brings you peace and contentment if you decide to sit on this front porch looking at this beautiful view and write a letter to i don't know if you have children but your children's children around what you learned about having a healthy and thriving relationship with money or insert anything what would the theme of that letter be
0: That money is just like anything else, a form of energy and to treat it as such, to never make it your idol or your God, to use it with love, to use it for the things that you enjoy, to, you know, have freedom, to have independence, to be charitable, to always use money to help those underserved and to use a portion of your proceeds always to give back. This is like this tithing concept, which is in a way to give and to be charitable, but also to protect your own assets through the act of charity, and to really just enjoy life and never to be trapped or beholden by money or anything else that's material.
1: It's so interesting. You said like the energy of money, considering the the word we describe money as currency, which is like a current of energy. I just want to make a comment that there's so much good research coming out on giving to others and how that can promote happiness. Mm -hmm. Before I ask where people can find more about you, your book, your website, I did talk about joy. So what does joy mean to you? And what's the difference between joy and happiness, if there is any at all? Joy to me means
0: living the best life possible where I'm helping people and I'm surrounded by the people I love and I'm feeling a lot of positive emotions throughout the day. Happiness is a more general, you know, where I'm living in accordance with my values, which could sometimes be difficult, which could sometimes lead to downs, but knowing in the gestalt overall that I'm moving myself in the direction that I need to be and that I'm going to be proud of being on my deathbed in many, many years.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. And I felt some joy during this conversation. So where can people find more about yourself, the work you're doing and your book?
0: It's on my website, which is AnnaUseThem.com, A-N-N-A-Y-U-S-I-M.com. My book is available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And there's capacity to contact me through the website.
1: Okay, great. We'll include all that in the show notes. Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for the work you're doing and for joining us today.
0: Amazing. Thank you, Sean. Best of luck to you. You too. My wealth is measured and now I spend my time. But now I read story with every breath in hell. Money is not
1: the boat of life, it's just the wind in the sail.